Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I, uh, well, I hope that you've found your way to our new and improved website. In case you uh, haven't been there yet, you may want to take a look at psychedelicsalon.com. And unless you have bookmarked the old matrixmasters.net site, well, you've probably found it already. And uh, after today's talk, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But uh, first, let me introduce today's program. As you may recall, in July I podcast a talk between Shona Holm and Kai Wingo. And uh, it was podcast number 458. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I strongly recommend that you do so. It was uh, in that podcast that Kai told us about the Women and Entheogens conference that she was organizing. Well, that conference took place a week ago, and today we are going to get to listen to one of the talks that Shona Holm gave there. From the uh, photos that I've seen, some men were also in the audience, but as I understand it, the focus of the conference was to take a look at our sacred medicines from a woman's point of view. Now, uh, I know that some of our younger and somewhat macho male psychonauts uh, may think that psychedelics from a woman's point of view may only be about hearts, flowers, and uh, cute little bunnies. <laughs> but trust me on this, some of the most courageous explorers of the psychedelic realm that I've ever met are women. You know, several thousand years ago, medicine women were the most important members of the tribe. And uh, fortunately today, for us fun-loving men, some serious-minded women are now reviving the role of the medicine woman in our culture. And we are about to learn more about this movement in just a few moments. But first, let me give you a little background information so that you'll be better prepared to digest the importance of the historical setting that Shona begins with. At the time that my brother died, uh, a few years ago, he was a tenured professor at the University of Granada in Spain, where he had made his home ever since graduating from the University of Notre Dame in 1969. My brother, Miguel, was a Spaniard and a European through and through, and he was obviously well informed about the state of education around the world. During our many years of correspondence, one of the topics that frequently came up was the terrible quality of our education here in the States. Now today, as I come into contact with fellow saloners from all over the world, particularly young people, I've come to realize that it didn't take a scholar like my brother to see that the number of ignorant people in the United States seems to get larger and larger every year. And please note that I said ignorant, not stupid. Most people aren't actually as stupid as they seem. They are just being kept in the dark by those who have control of their lives. The example of the press secretary to that uh, simple-minded child, George W. Bush, should give you an idea of things. Her name is Dana Perino, and uh, she made an announcement one day that referenced the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. However, when she was pressed to explain the reference, she had to admit that she had no idea of what the Cuban Missile Crisis was all about. And she was the press secretary to the President of the United States at the time. Now, if you're a young student in the U.S. right now and don't know about this yourself, well, you probably should check it out, because most historians will agree that those 13 days in October of 1962 were the time that the world came as close as it ever has to a full-out nuclear war between the U.S. and the then-Soviet Union. It was a very close call. And <laughs> yet the spokesperson for the President of the United States a few years ago had no clue about it. Now, she's not a stupid lady, but about some very, very important world and U.S. history, she was completely ignorant. So how did we get to this point in the dumbing down of the people in this nation? Well, as a lead-in to understanding the cultural constructs that attempt to prevent us from discovering that the emperor wears no clothes, Shona Holm takes us on a fascinating historical journey that lays bare the simple fact that it's the powers that be, the ruling elite, the billionaires, or whatever label you want to hang around their lousy necks. The simple fact of the matter is that the one percenters want us the masses, to remain ignorant. 
And I'm not talking just about being ignorant of important historical and civic issues. I'm talking about some really basic facts about being a human, living a life that is free from the influence of peddlers of organized superstition and nationalism and all of the other isms. But uh, (laughs) once again, I digress. So let me get out of the way right now so that we can all listen to Shona Holmes' presentation from the Women and Entheogens Conference that was held in Cleveland, Ohio, just last week. So, yes, my talk's called Sacred Mushrooms, Seeing Through the Spell of the Construct, and I will just tell you how this subject came about. I was, uh, uh, I want to say the medicine, I, I call it the medicine. <laughs> And, and uh, to me, well, it is the, the title of my book, Love and Spirit Medicine. That is what I see it as, love and spirit medicine, and also big, big, big shadow medicine as well. Uh, but I was working with the medicine uh, in April on my birthday, and I was out in a field in nature, just downwind of a uh, wildlife rescue place. And I was deep in the medicine, and I felt the presence come in me of all of these injured birds and uh, and I'm still haunted when I feel this and they said uh, they were from that wildlife rescue and they said we are here because of what you call progress do you see the irony of progress and I felt that very deeply and just wondered what on earth happened that caused us to be so separate from nature and so incredibly selfish and infantilized and I'm not saying people in this room obviously but you know just like society in general how did this detachment from essentially our mother occur. And uh, it was spoken about earlier today, uh, uh, I think it ultimately goes back to the Old Testament and that uh, God of the intellect or heaven, essentially, from the neck up. And then everything from the neck below, which is the feminine earth, all of that became subordinate to that. And uh, so I was thinking back and I thought of uh, I think they call it the Age of Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, as if for some reason we were not enlightened before then. But in any case, so in the 17th century, we had this scientific revolution, and uh, I see this as a, a major shifting from this sense of, uh, of being part of an interconnected whole on this planet to a compartmentalization, to... Uh, uh, a view of uh, humans and animals as sort of sort of breaking them down to the sum of our parts, essentially, and uh, and then that fueled the uh, uh, industrial revolution. And so, uh, first of all, let's see. There's a great quote. I love this quote. Every man has two educations. The first he is given. The second, more important, he gives to himself. And I see that first education as our conditioning. I think we have been trained like dogs in this culture uh, and, uh, and, and just completely conditioned and indoctrinated. And, and then where does that second education come? And so let's uh, sort of go back a bit to where I think the shit hit the fan, as it were. And we'll start with the Industrial Revolution. And that was about the mechanization of people and the mechanization of animals. And it was all about efficiency and profits. And uh, Alvin Toffler, in his book, The Third Wave, described the Industrial Age as the second wave. And he wrote, quote, the second wave society is industrial and based on Mass production, mass distribution, mass consumption, mass education, mass media, mass recreation, mass entertainment, and weapons of mass destruction. You combine those things with standardization, centralization, 
concentration and synchronization and you wind up with a style of organization we call bureaucracy. And just a little joke for you, by the way, I couldn't resist. Um, if you look up the word bureaucrat in Random House Dictionary, um, the definition of that is a person who works a fixed routine without exercising intelligent judgment. And that's really what it's all about. It is about mechanization. And so the industrial age shifted things radically. Um, it shifted things away from that small family artisanal uh, business where uh, uh, a skill was passed down and, and you would uh, have an apprenticeship. And uh, it, things shifted into these factories with, which became bastions of uh, inhumanity and, uh, and corruption and uh, child labor as well. And so here's just another photo from that time of child laborers. And, um, and so this is where something called Taylorism or scientific management was born. And that was a compartmentalization. It was a fragmentation where instead of an artisan uh, creating something from start to finish with skill and empowerment, I would say, it broke that down into sections. And then it gave certain people a specific section to do. And, and that's where uh, the assembly line came, came in. Um, and so it's all about increasing efficiency and ultimately profits. And so this scientific management or Taylorism was like, all right, how can we scientifically um, uh, create uh, machines out of these people? How can we sort of stimulate them uh, to become machines? And by the way, the industrial class was an underclass. These people were thought of as expendable and totally exploitable. And every color is represented here. Um, the African-Americans uh, were treated like dog dirt. The Irish were treated like dog dirt. I mean, you know, if you're the industrial class, you know, oh well. So um, that brings me now to um, the inception of uh, state schooling. Uh, because this scientific management or Taylorism uh, was brought into uh, the school system and school, public schooling did not have this sort of mytho uh, mythological uh, beginning that uh, many of us uh, think it did actually. Uh, there's a fellow named John Taylor Gatto and he was a teacher and he is a phenomenal speaker uh, about the failings of uh, the public school system. And he's on YouTube check him out. And so in his words, according to him, he said, quote, uh, the thinking behind this new kind of education was you could convert sovereign human beings into human resources. By making them incomplete, unable to think in context, they could be converted into specialist tools for scientific management. And so public school came about because a politician named Horace Mann was contacted by the railroad interests in Connecticut who uh, wanted better control of their workers. So through his connections, he implemented the compulsion laws where children were, instead of being educated and apprenticed you know, within their communities and socialized within their communities, they were uh, forced into these state schools. And uh, parents opposed it, and it took another 15 years before any other state in this country would do it. And they had to do it pretty much by force because parents could see, no, 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 no. This is about control. That's not going to happen. And so this was uh, also class warfare. And in 1872, the U.S. Bureau of Education, uh, the Circular of Information, wrote, quote, inculcating knowledge teaches workers to be able to perceive and calculate their grievances, thus making them more redoubtable foes in labor struggles. Such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry. So we see where uh, the emphasis was. Uh, and then 16 years later, the Senate Committee Report on Education said, quote, we believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years, manifesting itself among the laboring uh, classes. So this new education was based on scientific management or Taylorism. And so 
It was about compartmentalizing these children and um, uh, putting in the sort of behaviorist techniques and training them to essentially answer questions and take orders. So this brings me to the behaviorist. And so we'll start with Pavlov, and he is, of course, uh, known for Pavlovian conditioning or classical conditioning and most famous for his experiments on dogs. So his whole thing was you could uh, repeat something over and over and create an automatic response in people. And so he would ring a bell when it was uh, dinner time for the dogs and the dogs would come running and they would eat their food. And after a while, he would ring the bell, but there'd be no food, but the dogs would salivate because they associated the sound of the bell with food. So this was put forth in the factories, of course. So a steam whistle would go off, and people would just automatically stop what they were doing, go out for their break, smoke a cigarette, bell would go off, back in they go, you know, bell would go off, end of the day. So people would just, you know, knee-jerk respond. And then, of course, we see, you know, the school bell in school as well. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, the education folks loved this. And in 1903, the Atlantic Monthly called for the formal adoption of scientific management in schools. And then education theorist William C. Bagley called for, quote, unquestioning obedience in the new 20th century education. He wrote, quote, this new system would train children for life in 20th century America to fulfill the needs of commerce industry, and government. All right, so this fellow is John B. Watson, and he is known as the father of behavioral modification. And he conducted experiments at Johns Hopkins on babies three months old to one year. And uh, he discovered that babies have no fear. I mean, obviously, you can make a big, loud noise that startles them and frightens them. But other than that, they weren't afraid of the dark. They weren't afraid of scary masks. They had no reference point. And so... He uh, experimented on these babies and brought in like a furry bunny and put it in front of the baby who delighted in it. And then he created a, a, a very sharp, loud noise behind the baby and frightening the baby. And he did this a few times and then eventually showed the baby the rabbit and the baby went into fits of panic because it associated that startling fear with the rabbit. And so... He uh, essentially uh, inflicted pathologies in otherwise you know, healthy individuals. And he also concluded that the driving force for humanity was not love. It was fear. So um, he wrote, quote, Give me a dozen healthy infants, well-formed, and my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee to take any one at random and train him to become any type of specialist I might select doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, and yes, even beggar man and thief, regardless of his talents, pensions, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and race of his ancestors. And so the whole philosophy behind this was that you could just turn flesh and blood human beings into machines. And, um, and they can be designed for very specific purposes and uh, ordered to do so um, you know, with, with just uh, you know, the ring of a bell. And so behavioral modification uh, became all the rage. And then we have Skinner. I hope you're sort of taking a look at these guys. They're really creepy. Anyway, Skinner's very famous, you know, in the education world. He was all about positive and negative reinforcement. He was also way into totalitarianism. And uh, so he, too, was about... Um, you know, creating an artificial environment and then, you know, through positive or negative reinforcement, you get, you know, children especially to do precisely what you want. I mean, we do this as parents. We see, you know, there's two sides of the coin. This stuff is fascinating, of course, and interesting. And, and long, long ago, the philosophers found, you know, the, 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 the workings of the human psyche immensely fascinating. But we see what has occurred now in the last 150 years where this became uh, turned into a weapon against us. And so in Skinner's words, quote, it is in the nature of scientific progress that the functions of autonomous man be taken over one by one as the role of the environment is better understood. And then he wrote, it is in the nature of an experimental analysis of human behavior that it should strip away the functions previously assigned to autonomous man and transfer them one by one to the controlling environment. Now, don't you know that the elite families really dug these guys? 
And from 1922 to 1929, the Rockefellers, the Kelloggs, and the Harrimans funded over $50 million to U.S. universities to uh, fund research into these psychological methods of control uh, for uh, Americans. And um, they essentially took it upon themselves to change the nature of society. And then we have, I couldn't resist this um, this slide, Pink Freud, the dark side of the mind. Oh my God, I had laughed so hard when I saw that. Just to lighten it up a little bit, because this is heavy. But all right, so then enter Freud, and uh, the father of psychoanalysis, and he was all about what was lurking just beneath the surface in people. Those repressed emotions, uh, repressed sexuality, repressed violence. And he actually hated people. And he really had no faith in uh, humanity whatsoever. And um, and just entirely dismissive. And uh, yet eventually, you know, uh, when his nephew, Edward Bernays, I'll speak of in a sec, uh, brought him forward through his public relations expertise, Freud was, you know, on the lips of every intellectual and, you know, quite lauded and eventually practically canonized. And yet... Freud and uh, these other folks mentioned thus far. It's just so ironic to me because they're thought of as these these um, great masters of you know understanding the psyche. And I, I, I feel really that these guys were uh, pretty psychologically disturbed, and they were riddled with unresolved personal material. And so, in terms of uh, Freud, who really felt that humans could not be trusted to make rational decisions, you know, big influence this guy. Uh, I just, I just, I'm like a little projection there, Freud, maybe? I don't know. So now we have his nephew, Edward Bernays. So Freud was uh, considered the father of psychoanalysis. Bernays was considered the father of public relations. Uh, he actually coined that term. Originally it was propaganda, but he changed it to public relations in a very smooth public relations move, of course. And he originally, back around World War I, was working for uh, the government, or just after World War One, and he was kind of in charge of American propaganda. And uh, when he got home from all of that, he realized, well, well, geez, and he did very well. If this stuff works in wartime, it's got to work in peacetime as well. So he read one of Uncle Freud's books, and uh, and a light bulb went off in his head, and he thought, you know what, we could use these psychological techniques on crowds. Because at that time, Americans were very practical, and they would buy stuff more out of need than desire. And uh, so at this time, the American Tobacco Corporation hired uh, Bernays because they were missing half the market, and uh, because it was taboo for uh, a good woman to smoke in public. And so because of uh, Bernays' grasp of these sort of base desires, uh, he, he convinced a group of uh, very wealthy debutantes in New York to march in the Macy's Day Parade and light up cigarettes. And uh, he had spoken with this uh, psychologist who told him that cigarettes are associated with the penis and therefore male power. So it will give these women, uh, and, and women witnessing this, this sense of, of power uh, and, and that they have their own penis, essentially. And, uh, and so Bernays, ever the genius, referred to the cigarettes as torches of freedom. Do you see the manipulation? And then he contacted the press and said, listen, the, the, the suffragettes are going to march and light up. And so sure enough, they did, and the press covered it. It was everywhere. And uh, after that, women started taking up smoking, feeling, though, not because they wanted to smoke, but they associated this false sense of power uh, and that they can be up there with, with the guys and smoking these cigarettes. And after that, Bernays could name his price. And so he also was one who associated, you know, doing car commercials and placing a gorgeous woman. So then in the lower brain, these men would associate, oh, if I get the car, you know, I get the girl. And um, Bernays also couldn't stand human beings, and he referred to them as stupid dopes. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then, uh, so he essentially, though, he manipulated Americans. He just changed things completely and manipulated them into desiring 
rather than needing. And he would stimulate those desires, and then the desires would be managed with the purchase of a product. Uh, and so Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers at that time said, quote, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. All right, and so this was, advertising became all about tapping into the deep psyche and the desires of the deep psyche. And then Bernays went on to uh, work with politicians as well, big, big, big political manipulation, and he became at one point the most powerful man in America. And then there was a guy named Walter Lippmann, and he was deeply influenced by Freud. And at the time, uh, he was one of the most influential political thinkers in America, okay? And he wrote uh, uh, that, quote, a new elite was needed to manage the bewildered herd. And so he saw uh, regular folks as just animals in the street. And, uh, and so he, too, looked towards psychological science for ways in which to control the bewildered herd. And so enter TV, <laughs> television, the opiate of the masses and the ultimate tool of the social engineers. And so television has been around for 75 years now. And according to the Nelson reports, people watch an average, I think it's like 34 hours a week of TV with an additional three hours of tape television. And my mother, God bless her, like a lot of elderly people, turns that TV on first thing in the morning and it's on all day long until nighttime when she turns it off. And so television um, will present, uh, has presented America with these uh, sort of uh, quote-unquote, you know, normal average family uh, families um, and then people would identify with that and they could implant any kind of sort of uh, uh, social agenda they wanted um, into those shows. And in the first minute of watching TV, I think it's like the first 15 seconds, you go into a mild trance state. And so you leave the critical thinking brain and you go into this alpha, relaxed state where you're highly suggestible. So um, TV, um, I mean, it can be amazing as well, as we know, like any technology, but it has really been um, used uh, and abused. Uh, another uh, quote by our author uh, Joyce Nelson, who wrote The Perfect Machine, she writes... Uh, quote, as a real-life experience, this is on television, as a real-life experience is increasingly replaced by the mediated experience of television viewing, it becomes easy for politicians and market researchers of all sorts to rely on a base of mediated mass experience that can be evoked by appropriate triggers. The TV world becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The mass mind takes shape. Its participants acting according to media-derived impulses and believing them to be their own personal, uh, of their own personal volition arising out of their own desires and needs. In such a situation, whoever controls the screen controls the future, the past, and the present. And so this is, it's a very, very powerful tool. All right, which brings us to the CIA, and I spoke earlier on uh, their horrific abuse uh, of LSD and uh, other uh, substances on unsuspecting people, and we also have Dr. Ewan uh, Cameron, who was head of the American Psychiatric Association, and he was running those secret CIA experiments. And um, and the CIA as well funded untold millions of dollars into these universities for these uh, uh, research programs on uh, how to uh, have more psychological control on people. And I find this very interesting because don't you wonder, what are they afraid of? What are they afraid of? Why are, is this, there this war on the mind? Why do they want so badly to control it? What is this? What is this? I think it's a wand. So anyway, so here we have now today, um, you know, the masses uh, during rush hour. This is New York, but it could be any city and very well-programmed people uh, rushing, stressing to get to work on time and um, and uh, and just you know programmed to the nines, and then this I find very disturbing. Um, this is a reality for many many people in our country, the cubicle. And I found an article. There was no author there, but this person wrote, "Quote: 
Are you one of those busy bee cells in this gigantic organism called economics? Ready to be used when necessary, regularly abused and exploited, part of a modern collective mind, the grease in a strive for more effective processes, additional customer benefits, cost reductions, outsourced creativity, increasing profits, unlocked synergies. Think in company synonyms. Sacrifice your soul. Live in a life separated from the world. And then this person writes, the cubicle is the perfect metaphor for what we are, not for what we want. We want to be individuals and free spirits, but our square heads forced into a small box. We want to live our dreams, but they come pre-customized and uniformly ready-made, prison incorporated limited. We are forced into the corner, comply, obey, and shut up. And then here we have, uh, this is apparently a very common sight on the uh, subway during rush hour in Japan. So just absolutely exhausted Japanese businessmen you know, just utterly drained dry. So I call this a factory culture. It's interesting. There's another uh, man I greatly admire, Neil Kramer, who is a uh, mystic and philosopher. He calls it machine culture. We're saying the same thing. This mechanized culture of people who are just on autopilot. We've been so um, deeply programmed. Uh, we probably don't even, you know, many people don't even think their own thoughts. So, and they're too tired anyway to think. So, enter the mushroom. <laughs> Now, I ask you, though, I mean, how on earth do we manage this when we are so deeply programmed, when we are so uh, uh, deeply into a lockstep? Where is our reference point for this? And in my opinion, the mushroom interrupts the programming. It interrupts the programming. It's that face slap that throws all your conditioning out the window because your conditioning doesn't apply in those realms. It's a hindrance in those realms. And so the mushroom ultimately calls us back to our humanity. It calls us back to our humanity, the dark and the light. Terence McKenna once said, if you're one of those individuals who doesn't want to look at that and doesn't want to look at that either, then the mushroom's not for you because that stuff will find you. And, uh, and that is a necessity because in order to change a bad habit, and we are in a very bad, bad habit in this modern culture, you got to see the issue. You have to see it. Unpleasant as it may be, we cannot heal or correct what we will not or, uh, or cannot see. And so uh, the mushroom has a very necessary role of pulling one out of that mindset, if you will, and uh, calling one into a very different state, uh, a state where, again, we have no reference point for that in this culture, and yet, again, calling us back to our humanity. Uh, this society we are in is a construct It's a vast game of dress-ups. I'll play the teacher, you be the cop, you be the whatever, and, uh, and, and then this, is, this whole structure is created, and we have things like you know, paper money with symbols on it, and we get bills in the mail with more symbols and sigils, and, and we're just all propping it up and calling it real, but it's actually not. And, uh, and then you know, that throws into question for some people, well, what is real? And I say... She's real out there. Nature. You're real. I'm real. We are nature. But how do we find our way back? And I really uh, feel that the mushroom, among other of Earth's offerings, uh, is uh, Earth's way of calling her children back because we have utterly lost ourselves. Uh, it also takes us very deeply into the mystery of our being. We are a mystery. And we, uh, most people, operate on a very surface, superficial level. And uh, uh, really, I see everything as metaphor. And the mystery is all around us. The magic is all around us. But we don't see it. It's all here. And we only see this teeny tiny piece of it. And we think that that's the whole thing. And we're missing these uh, messages. We're, we're missing uh, spirit. I, I think of it as spirit because I go deep into those realms and we're, 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 it's speaking to us all the time. And so 
how really uh, do we kind of formulate a framework for this or, or, or induct ourselves into this? Well, uh, enter the medicine woman. Uh, as we were talking earlier about uh, the uh, kind of a traditional role that uh, many women or certain women through uh, the ages have played as what I said, the uh, keeper of the wisdom or the keeper of the mysteries. Uh, interestingly, you know, when the uh, Vatican put forth that papal bull and it was uh, open season on quote-unquote witches, the first women, men were also tortured and burned as well, but the first women they went after were the crones, the older women, the keepers of the knowledge They were uh, that they set after them immediately because uh, they were holding all of that. And women have long been associated, as I said earlier, with uh, the, the invisible realms, with the uh, uh, irrational states, if you will, uh, and with intuition. And uh, also we were talking earlier about, okay, great, I mean, what, what would that be like if we had sort of centers and these substances were made legal and people could go in and do that and... and uh, You know, for myself, I am not decorated with any initials after my name. I am not licensed. Uh, and, and I work one-on-one -on -one in a therapeutic way with people, both without the medicine and then at times with the medicine. And I have called on, uh, well, through the deep work I have done, but also um, the mushrooms brought me to my Celtic roots. It's, it's brought my, I call them the ancestors of my ancestors back in touch with me, so that it has uh, enabled me to uh, work with people in this therapeutic way and, uh, you know, in a very, very powerful way. Uh, and also, uh, women were also um, seers. They functioned as seers and oracles, and medicine women, wise women, priestesses, and other names we probably have no record of. Uh, and they took these roles seriously and, as I said, were uh, cherished uh, in their communities. And I feel that these women are needed today, truly. And so I just want to uh, talk a bit about uh, Maria Sabina, whose name, of course, has already been mentioned today. And um, someone already mentioned a little bit of her background. So what I want to share with you is... Uh, it is, has been said in some circles that um, it is the job of the uh, medicine person to bring through the voice of the mushroom. And uh, there's a woman named Barbara Tedlock, Ph.D., who wrote a fabulous book called The Woman in the Shaman's Body. I highly recommend that book. And she writes, quote, Shamans are seers, oracles, and oral poets, and their artistic language creates a healing path for their patients. And so... The mushroom connects one to the language of the soul. And so Maria Sabina would uh, repeat these beautiful chants when she was working with the medicine. And so here's one of the chants she would say, Woman who waits am I. Woman who divines am I. Woman of law am I. Woman of the Southern Cross am I. Woman of the First Star am I. For I go up into the sky. And then there was another Mazatec shaman, uh, Irene Pineda de Figueroa. And she too would chant when she was on the medicine. And this is just a sampling of one of her chants. She, she said, Woman of medicine and cures, who walks with her appearance and her soul. She is the woman of remedy and medicine. A woman who speaks. A woman who puts everything together. Doctor woman. Woman of words, wisdom woman of problems. I like that line very much because these women would uh, work with a patient and they would uh, take in ingest the mushrooms and they would call in spirit and ask uh, spirit to have mercy on this person and to help them to be the conduit and to assist this person. They would be given information about what medicines were needed to heal this person. And uh, I'm going to talk about um, uh, Julieta de Casimiro in a second. She's one of, well, here she is. She's one of the 13 indigenous grandmothers. I love her, and she's also a Mazatec woman. She's still alive today. And uh, she works with people in that way. Uh, and when I am on the medicine working with someone, 
the mushroom gives me information about what is going on in their psyche, in their soul, what must be addressed there. So I got one of those full-body chills when I had read those words because I thought, all right, I do this, but not for the physical, but for this, because uh, we have a soul sickness or spirit illness. It's, it's in crisis uh, levels in our society. I think we can all agree uh, the, the soul of our people uh, has been egregiously damaged. And so grandmother Julieta de Casimiro uh, got married at the age of 17 and her mother-in-law uh, was a traditional Mazatec medicine woman and they, she initiated her into working with the mushrooms. And so now for 40 years she has been working with people and they come from all over and she uh, assists people who are very, very ill, whether it's mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. And she says, quote, for the work to go well, I am always invoking God. And then she says, quote, because we don't have money for doctors, we heal ourselves with the mushrooms. It is believed that God gave mushrooms to the peasants and to those who could not read in order for them to have a direct experience of him. So this is what it is, I think, uh, some examples of what it is to function as a visionary medicine woman, where you are deeply connected to the mystery, spirit, uh, the ancestors, however you wish to uh, think of it. And then you are in service to these people who are suffering. Now, uh, and, 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 and this is not just in South America. As I said before, uh, the uh, Celtic people were working with plant uh, and fungi. Uh, the Norse, the Africans, the Siberians, uh, North and South Americans. Now, Martin Prechtel, who I adore, said that human survival depends on, quote, keeping alive the seeds of our original, forgotten, spiritual excellence. And so, we must break the spell of the modern construct And this is what the beings, the teachers, how they speak with me, they say it is but a spell. It's sorcery, really. I mean, truly, we're to take into account what these behaviorists were doing and saying, and then the folks who were funding them. That is sorcery, that kind of manipulation, to have that deep, deep level of understanding of the inner workings of the psyche. But uh, regular folks don't really have it. They're not aware of it, so this kind of thing is being done, this kind of manipulation. That is sorcery. And so, uh, ultimately, uh, I see nature uh, as, nature is our mother, and nature has a cure for all our ills. And I feel that she is calling us back through her plants. So for some of us, we are drawn to the visionary plants and fungi, and for others, uh, they just want to. They want to buy land. They want to grow their own food. They want to connect back to the land. This is a wave, and it's growing, and not just in this country. I always say this kind of awakening that is occurring is the biggest news you'll never hear. And uh, and so, for as grim as it appears at times, I actually do have great hope. And uh, I love this picture. This is by my friend Tara Holcomb. And it makes me think of uh, the waters of gnosis and wisdom that we, with these substances, make ourselves available uh, to that and ultimately open to our intuition, open uh, to the deep mystery of our being, and open to our ancestors as well. So uh, let's see. And then ultimately opening the heart. I really uh, see this as... Uh, heart medicine. Now, uh, I'm not talking about uh, fluffy bunnies and butterflies when I speak of the heart either because I worked with a teacher who was very heart-centered and he would say that the heart center can hold the whole show. So he would say before you go into shadow, your own shadow, the ego can't really handle that. You must heart center. You must heart center and, and, and be in that space and then let the suchness of what that shadow piece is come into your awareness so you can work with it, bring it into uh, uh, the light of day. So I am going to uh, finish, and maybe we'll have time for questions, but I'm going to finish with a poem. I have been writing poetry since I had that 
entire year of monthly shamanic immersions with this medicine. And I really, looking back, see that as a kind of soul training, and the soul doesn't care a fig what the rules of the day are. If you're called, you're called, and I was, and I don't do it every month anymore. But I do do it when I am called. And so poetry comes in quite often, and so I started asking for poems to finish these talks that I give uh, because poetry is a language of the soul. It is something that uh, we used to partake of uh, quite a lot before this whole sort of machine culture really gripped us. And I think for anyone who, who does write poetry, you know that you have to kind of go into a different state of consciousness to write it, to compose it, and then to receive it, whether you're reading it or listening. You have to go into a different state of consciousness to receive it. And so I just invite you to uh, go into uh, even more receptive than maybe you already are. And this is called A New Mindset. The spells that bind the untrained mind and steer it away from truth must be sought out with keen, intrepid care and the expertise of a sleuth. For the crafty lies of the potentates who divide the masses and stir up hate must be brought to the light of awareness now as the earth seeks to show her children how to access wisdom, knowledge, and truth in hopes that it reaches our burgeoning youth who will carry the torch passed from elders wise. And so now it is time to realize that the long-held secrets kept shadowed are found within plants and fungi that come from the ground. Beneath your very feet that walk, it is with you they wish to talk. These are ancient teachers and sages of old that instructed initiates who once were told to carefully tend to the sacred wisdom, to pass it forward from kingdom to kingdom. And now, as our precious earth cries out, the initiates of old are instructed to shout to the sleeping masses who are losing ground to wake up now so they can found a pathway home to truth and light and wisdom that cuts through the dark of this night. The plant teachers break the sorcerer's spell. The fungi will lead you from possible hell to clarity where creativity flows, where the mind, now free, is able to sow the solutions so needed to heal this great earth, to bring us together as kindreds, to birth a new manner of living together on Terra that brings peace to the forefront of this new era that casts out the trickery, deceit, and lies, and brings us to where we can realize ourselves as noble sons and daughters flowing within the earthly waters of beauty and wisdom and kindly intention that fans the flames of a new invention, birthed from opening the gates of the heart. The mushroom will guide us where to start to heal and repair the damage done to all Earth's beings under the sun. The mushroom spirits have much to teach, though some naysayers will call it a reach. Yet the women of wisdom are rising today, and we're just getting started in having our say. So be glad in your hearts, dear ones who fret. We will see that Earth's people do not forget their intrinsic magic and depth of soul and the sacred medicines that make them whole. Thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. While I was listening to Shona with you just now, I thought back to my childhood when uh, she talked about how Americans were being manipulated from being a society that bought only what it needed and into a society that also bought everything that it wanted. I hadn't thought about this before now, but I can clearly remember when things began to change during the 1950s. That was when credit cards first started coming into vogue. And the reason that I remember those early days of credit cards so clearly is because my dad absolutely refused to have a credit card, uh, well, right up until the day he died in 1975. As a kid back then, I always thought that we were much poorer than my friends were. But my guess now is that it was also because my parents refused to buy anything on credit. 
It seems to me that, uh, well, those were the early days of our conversion into becoming consumers. I'm going to uh, actually be giving a lot more thought to those times uh, now that I have a new perspective from which to understand the larger picture of uh, what was going on back in the 1950s and 60s, back when I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to be, which is a task, uh, I should add, that is uh, still very much underway. But at this moment, I have a couple of other tasks that must uh, take precedence, and that is to finish the code for the second part of our new website. As I said earlier, you can now find the program notes for these podcasts at our new home, which is psychedelicsalon.com. And if you go there and uh, go to the podcast link, uh, there you're going to find on a single and somewhat long page a linked listing of every podcast that I've made from the salon. And the main feature that you'll see when you click a link and go to one of the podcast notes pages is that right under the title of the program, there's a button that you can click to live stream the podcast without having to uh, first download it. And all of the download features are still available, but uh, with so many saloners accessing these podcasts over their phones, uh, I hope this will be a little more convenient way to listen. Also, uh, you'll see that I've changed the categories links uh, into a drop-down list in four sections. Events, people, plants and chemicals, and topics. Also, uh, each of the items also show the number of programs in which the person or topic was featured in a podcast. And uh, you'll see that as of today, Terrence McKenna is our most frequently featured speaker here in the salon with uh, 223 podcasts. Uh, no surprise there, I guess. Also in the sidebar, there is now a search box a listing of the 10 most recent comments, and a drop-down link to the podcast archive, which is uh, organized by month and year. Also there is a link to the events calendar. The other section, uh, main section that you'll notice, is simply titled Saloners. And when you click that link, you're going to find that for a few more days, the main feature of that section won't have an active link. But What that will be is our social media portion of the site where you can interact with other saloners and uh, hopefully be able to find a few of the others to talk with. And one final thing for today is that if you go to the saloners page, you'll notice a link to the Psychedelic Salon Flipboard magazine. It's in the right sidebar. And if you haven't already taken a look at that magazine, you may want to check it out. That's where I post stories that uh, I think would be of interest to you. For example, the most recent stories that I've posted include one about senior citizens who are using cannabis, one about lawyers in Hawaii being prohibited from representing medical marijuana businesses, a story that talks about the science proving that cannabis actually helps brain functions, and uh, the recent high court ruling that cops can't search vehicles based solely on suspicion of pot possession, but uh, only in Massachusetts for now, I'm afraid. There are actually almost 800 articles in that little magazine right now, so if you haven't started reading it yet, you have some catching up to do, which uh, means I'd better let you get started. And so for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.